0: If you want to follow along with me this morning, uh, it's Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Last week we looked at verses 12 through 25, and we um, saw how the Holy Spirit was given to us to, first of all, lead us, lead us to say no to sin, yes to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit not only led us, but He loved us unto adoption as sons of God. And the Holy Spirit assured us of our place in God's family, and then gave us a groaning within us to to long for the fullness that is ours in Christ. We pick up verse twenty six. Says in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. So the passage is continuing. The Holy Spirit is continuing to help us live this life before god that is not condemned living without condemnation and the holy spirit helps us even in our uh, weakness now some of us don't like to be considered weak but the holy spirit helps us in our weakness and then He gives us really four areas that you can evaluate with me as i evaluate myself and i say yep those are weak areas. The first area is the area of prayer. Are you as effective in prayer as you can be? I so, uh, might be a little weak in prayer. Well, The Holy Spirit comes to help us in prayer. The Holy Spirit helps us in understanding that all things that are surrounding us are acts of God's providence. Do you get that? Do you see God in everything that surrounds you all day, every day? So, mm, I'm a little weak in that area too. And the Holy Spirit not only comes in surrounding us with great prayers and providence, but He also comes to help us understand our destiny. Do you really know where you're going? Do you know you are destined for Christ-likeness? And do you live that way on a daily basis? The Holy Spirit comes to help us with that. And then the Holy Spirit also comes in helping us understand, as we were just singing, how marvelous is the love of God how much it should set us to praise. So those are weak areas. The Holy Spirit is here to get us into that full birth of being in Christ. Um, sometimes we, we we miss seeing that that's what we're destined for in Christ, is to, to be fully in the image of Christ. I was sharing this in at um, my uh, Wednesday um discipleship class called dawn look at with me real quick genesis chapter 1 verse 26 through 27 uh, in creation we're introduced to god in genesis 1 that he is the creator father son and holy spirit and as father son and holy spirit he says this genesis 126 then god said let us father son and holy spirit let us make man in our image according to our likeness And let them rule over the fish and over the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now stop and think about that a minute. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, are they now living the image of God? Because God's image is holy. Holy. Man now is sinful. Adam and Eve sin. And I can imagine God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, conversing with one another and saying, mm, that's not how we designed life to be lived. How Adam and Eve are now living it. That's, they're not exhibiting our image as they once were. They were designed to be image bearers sin obscures the image of God now let me take you to Romans 8 verse 29 Romans 8 verse 29 you see this statement so since Adam and Eve sinned the goal of redemption is to bring us back to the image of Christ Romans 8 29 for those whom he foreknew he also predestined Here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. God's design was that we would bear his image. We mess that up when we sin. So he said, I'm going to send my son. My son's going to cover their sin so that I can conform them again to my image. The whole goal of redemption is to get us... Back into the image of God, and that is what we will become. Look over at First John chapter 4, verse 2. You see this all the way in the glory. First John chapter 4, excuse me, John, First John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. That's been God's design that we would be like Him, that we would bear His image, and we lose that with sin. The Holy Spirit comes to bring that back, to conform us to the image of Christ. Now, we get sidetracked. We get sidetracked every day. How many people have had somebody say to them, I wish you could be a lot more like your brother? I wish you could be more like your sister. I wish you could be a little bit more like your daddy. I wish you could be more like your mommy. I wish you could be more like that kid or that kid. Who's saying, I wish you could be more like Christ? You were designed to be like Christ, not like your brother, not like your sister, not like your mommy, not like your daddy. You were designed to be like Christ. The goal of redemption is for you to be conformed to the image of Christ. The goal of glory is that we will be like him, Christ. And we get so sidetracked. And we push people to be like someone else. And Instagram, we are bombarded with this passion inside of us to be like someone else. I was so wrestling with my own spirit yesterday after I saw you guys posting pictures of your snowmen. And I had three. And I so much wanted to post and say, I'm better than you. I got a family of snowmen. But I kept asking, why am I doing this? I only want to do it to be like them. They're doing it. They're cool. I want to do it. I want to be cool. And we get sidetracked that way to say, I want to be like men and women who are cool. Catch this principle. The best of man is only man at best. If you can be the best of man, you can be the coolest of men, male or female. You will still only be the best male or female at best. You're still not like Christ. You were designed to be like Christ. The goal of redemption is for us to be like Christ. Glory is that we will be like Christ. I need help with that. And you need help with that. The Holy Spirit comes to help our weakness. This passage is extremely important. We understand. God knows we need help. And he provides just the grace we need. When we need to be like someone other than the best of man or the best of women. I mean, just to imagine. I'm going to be one day like Christ. He's the king of kings. He's the God of gods. Not I, I get that my wife is becoming more and more a goddess. You know, she, she's getting there. But when I look at myself, I sometimes feel real weak. That I'm not getting conformed to the image of Christ. That I'm not becoming like the God-man Christ nearly quick enough or fast enough or sometimes at all. He helps our weakness. He helps us first of all in prayer. You know if we could just pray better prayers and pray to be conformed to the image of Christ you know, that would move us a long ways. Well we're weak at prayer as good as we are. Look at verse 26. It's in the same way the spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should. It's a pretty strong statement. It didn't say some of us didn't know. It says, no, we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who search- searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to God. You have an italics there, the will of God. It's a tough translation. So they've italicized what they've inserted But the Holy Spirit prays as God to God, literally, is the language. And the Holy Spirit is praying for us. Uh, We're weak at prayer. Why? Because it's not because we have a heart problem. It's because we have a word problem. We're not fluent at speaking God to God language. We don't even know what that is. We speak Christianese, and sometimes we think that's God language. But it's not. God speaks a language beyond us. The Holy Spirit speaks that language. He can speak as God would speak to God. We struggle with that. We do not know how to pray. Paul's saying that. Paul is saying, the Apostle Paul, I don't know how to pray. For you to get this, look around the room. Look at what you consider the most godly grandfather in the room. He doesn't know how to pray. Look at the most godly grandmother. She doesn't know how to pray. Are you feeling it yet? Because our tendency is to say, that person is so so much a prayer warrior. And we look at certain people who we think have it together. And then scripture like this comes along and says, no, they don't know how to pray. They don't know how to pray as God speaks to God. That's a weakness we have. Um, you know, try to break that down and think about it for a minute. Take, let me give you a couple simple prayers. The Lord told us how to pray. He says, pray like this. Get after our Father who art in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. seems like a simple prayer. Do you know how to pray that prayer? I bet most of us in this room haven't prayed that prayer in a while. Well, why should we pray, give us this day our daily bread when our pantries are sufficiently packed? Well, then does that mean we shouldn't have pantries? Or we shouldn't have pantries that are so full? Or, because with the bread in the pantry, we don't pray for bread. Or suppose... We don't have a pantry at all, and we don't have any food in the house, and we've gone a week, nearly starved to death. Do we pray, give us this day our daily bread then? Because maybe we're going through a trial or a struggle, and God has put us into this state of starvation to teach us something, so we still don't know how to pray or if we should pray that. And then have you ever stopped to consider how far ahead God's got to be of that prayer... What does it take to answer a prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Well, somebody that's God got to give you seed. And seeds got to be harvested into wheat. Before you're going to have somebody that's going to be able to grind the the wheat up and make flour and then bake the bread and That's going to require somebody to invent some sort of hearth or stove or an electrician or an appliance guy. And that's going to, somebody's got to make the bread and somebody's got to run the tractor and harvest all of that. Somebody's got to get it to a grocery store. Who's going to build the grocery store? Somebody's got to be the truck driver. Somebody's got to have transportation. I mean, do you think, have you thought about what it takes to get you a loaf of bread? I mean, it's way out there months and months and months to stock our shelves with bread give us this day our daily bread it's like, oh, i don't know how to pray that that's a big prayer because i'm wanting god to control all of this 6 months out just so i can have bread take another prayer we really don't understand our prayers Christian athletes in the room, you go into battle with your basketball opponent. What do you pray? You're Christian, right? So you pray before you play ball. And you pray that you will win. And the other team you're playing, they've got Christians. And what are they praying? They're praying to win. You're supposed to pray according to God's will. Who's Whose will is this? It's not your will. Yeah, I know you want to win, but does God want you to win or does God want them to win? How do you know? I don't know how to pray that prayer, even though we pray that prayer all the time. God, help us with our weaknesses. We think we have so much together, so much of the time, and yet when you really start to evaluate, I don't know how to pray God's will to God, according to His will, as God would speak to God. I'm weak. I'm so glad. God didn't say, now, um, He's going to intercede for us with groanings in other words. No, He says, too deep for words. The Holy Spirit's not even going to use words. He's going to use groanings. In other words, this is not a special tongues language. It's not even going to use the tongue. It's just going to groan as God would groan to God. So he's not asking us to learn another language. He's not asking us to speak like the preacher or like our holy grandmother or grandfather. And that's going to make our prayers better. He doesn't ever answer and says, I'm going to teach you how to pray better prayers. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to search your hearts. Did you catch that? That's why I said it's not a heart problem. The Holy Spirit's going to search your hearts. It's almost like he's not even paying attention to your words. So you're, you're trying to perfect your, your prayer language. You're trying to perfect how you speak to God. And yes, you should speak to him in a holy, reverent manner. Got that. But the Holy Spirit's job is to search your heart. And uh, he, what do you really mean by those words? What are you really trying to communicate to God? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He searches your hearts. He determines what your heart passion is. And that's what he communicates. He takes his groanings, his communication skills to say, this is what's on his heart or her heart. This is what they're really crying out for. And he communicates that. So what's the application? The application is simply this. Pour out your hearts to God. And the Holy Spirit does the rest. Just pour out your heart to God. Say, God, this is what bothers me. This is what's controlling this me. This is what I need. Express it the best you can. The Holy Spirit searches your heart and then translates that message that's on your heart to God. As God would speak to God. What a blessing. Because we don't know how to pray. As we should. Second, the Holy Spirit not only helps us with our prayers... But he helps us with our surroundings, everyday life. Uh, look at verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, that's quite a statement. We, most of us have memorized it. We use it in times of trouble. Somehow God's going to make these bad things turn out for good. The Holy Spirit is there to help us see that. The Holy Spirit is there to help us understand what we call providence. Everything that happens. God causes all things, not some, all things to work together for good. We call that providence. In God's sovereign care over all things, He arranges them in such a way, He superintends to them in such a way that we have an advantage. We who are those, those, and gives us qualifications. Those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. So it's not for everybody. The non-Christian doesn't have this advantage, having God in heaven superintending to all the surroundings, working them out in such a way that it's going to be, an, it's going to be a plus. It's going to be an advantage to you um, now and later. Uh, have you ever thought about? How that changes life. I need help with that. I woke up this morning trying to practice this passage. And so I, as soon as I got out of bed this morning and thought about it. I said, okay God, you work all things together for good. For me, because I, I love you and I'm called according to your purpose. So what does that mean for me today? That means the outcome has already been guaranteed to be an advantage doesn't mean everything's going to feel good, doesn't mean everything's going to feel fun, but it means regardless of how it feels to me, whether some things will be fun, some things will feel good, some things won't. But regardless of all of that, somehow God's going to turn it all into an advantage. It's going to be to my good. And when you stop and think about that, if if we really believed every day at the end of the day or at the end of a life, however you want to measure it, It's going to turn out good. Then you should wake up saying thank you God for the outcome. Haven't seen it yet. Don't quite know what it's going to be yet. Is it going to be good? So thanks. That's pretty cool. I've got a victory. I've got an advantage over many that I see today. My day is going to be a good day. That's called a good life. When it works out good. And so many of us sometimes struggle to see that Holy Spirit helps us with that weakness because uh, it, it, it will remove anxiety. It can remove so many things. I mean, my my fear is that I'm going to die on the roadway. Somebody's going to here going to pick me up one day. Okay, off the asphalt, just because I'm as distracted on the roadway as everybody else. And so as soon as I get behind the car these days. You know, I'm seeing people cross the yellow line. I don't know if it's a vision or if it's reality. A lot of times it's reality, you know. I'm moving into ditch, blowing horns. I mean, we've got people on our roadways. You're going to see them today. Some that are good drivers, some that are like me, not so good. We're going to see people that are drunk and driving. We're going to see really responsible people who are still distracted with their cell phone and driving we're going to see inexperienced folks driving. How are we going to make it home? God said, "I'm going to take all of that and I'm going to work it out for good." I see every driver, I see every car, I see everything that's going on, and I'm going to arrange it in such a way that it will still be for your good. So you don't really have to worry about that, David. You can take that off your plate. I got that. And God's got everything else. That we put into our surroundings that create fear and anxiety and depression. We have a struggle seeing God really control it all and control it all in such a way as to make us like Christ. Don't miss the word causes, verse 28. We know that God causes. In other words, every single thing that happens in our lives is a sent thing, it's sent by God, to surround us. It's under His control. Give you a quick example. It was... uh, Well, this one wasn't mentioned. Look at uh, Joseph's life. um, Genesis chapter 50. And you know the story maybe of Joseph uh, grew up the favorite child of his dad. You know, all of you have a favorite kid in the home perhaps. Well, this was the favorite kid in the home... um, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, uh, gives us the conclusion of his life. Joseph is speaking here. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Notice the perception there. A lot of evil, you meant evil. A lot of people have meant evil against me. Evil against you. He says, I get that. There, there are people who surround me. There are events that surround me that are just looks like they're designed to destroy me. And even though these events and people around me are meant to destroy me, I have a God in heaven who means to take all of these things and turn it into good. Now, I don't know a parent in this room who, if you knew that you had been birthed a Joseph, that he was one day going to be the next president, the next leader of the nation of Egypt. So how would you train him up to be a national leader, the top national leader? I don't know any of us who would have sent our son to the schools God sent Joseph to. To be stripped of his clothes, thrown in a pit, sold as a slave, worked hard as a slave, advanced as a slave, uh, rejected again, thrown into prison again, rejected there, despised again. And then eventually he becomes, after learning all of these things, he learns he's ready to be leader of a nation. He says, people meant to destroy me, even my own brothers but God meant it for good. And now I'm a national leader and I can preserve life. That's God's superintending. That's God's providence that He takes stuff. I mean, and then that took years, that took a lifetime. Sometimes we look at life only at a day or only in hours or moments. And God's looking at a lifetime, conforming us to the image of Christ giving us the victory in the, the long game more than what we see in the short game. You know, I, I think about what kind of things have destroyed me the most that I've seen as evil against me. As a pastor, I'll just tell you, it's one thing I hate. I hate church splits. I hate seeing a church suffer. and That's what breaks... One of the things that breaks my heart. Some of you, we got a lot of guests in the room. And when I get time to talk with you, you say, tell me about the church. Where does the church come from? Where is the church going? Great question. I love answering that. And as I answer that question, a lot of times I say, well, where does the church come from? Well, New Covenant Church is the product of three splits. And we split the first time and left a lot of hurting, suffering people. At first press. We split again. And left a lot of hurting suffering people. At Christ Church. And we split again. And left a lot of hurting suffering folks. At New Covenant. And I can't tell you how many times. I've told God. I wouldn't do it that way. I just would not orchestrate. Our lives that way. And I'm still. Confused as to why. That kind of hurt and suffering happens. But it has left Anderson with three local churches. That are all functioning well. And I think, well, God, maybe that was your plan. We were just too selfish, too sinful. We wouldn't plant the other churches. I don't know. But I know it's hurtful. I know it's painful. I know it's suffering. And I know I wouldn't do it that way. But that's the marvelous providence of God to now leave us with I just say hands down we're the best church in town and that's, that's the work of God through a lot of hurt and pain and suffering to bring us to where we are today there are people who mean things for bad God turns them for good over and over and over sometimes we're the people who mean it for bad for someone else And God's working on both of us in his glorious providence to continue building up and uh, growing the church. So let God's providence, number one, let it humble us. For those who love the Lord, we can pride ourselves and say, yeah, I, I love the Lord. But then it says, who are called. None of us call ourselves We've been called into life with God, into His church by His grace. That should humble us. We are not where we are. We are not experiencing the victories and the glories we experience because of us and because of our love for God, but because of His calling to Himself, because of making us the, the object of His affection. So He cares for us and continues to mold us the goal to make us into the image of Christ, the good life, and to give us the good life to enjoy. Well, let me keep going. I'm going to run out of time. The Holy Spirit helps us <coughs> with our prayers, helps us in understanding God's providence, helps us conform us to the image of Christ. It's called predestination. Look at verse 29 and 30. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined is a big word. Uh, you, some of you kids, you can write it down this morning. Words I do not know. It just simply means to predetermine. He predetermined we be conformed to the image of his son so that we, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So that Christ would have many people that are like him uh, conformed to his image. Um, we all have plans. Predestination is not a hard word. You know, My wife is good at making plans. She's already planned dinner. She's planning supper. She's probably planning all next week, for all I know. She's a good planner. She determines ahead of time when she goes to the store, I need this, 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 because these are my plans. We have plans to accomplish things, fulfill things. That's all God had here. He says, uh, the people I foreknew, the people I called, the people I chose for myself, I have a plan for them to be conformed to the image of Christ. For me to get them conformed, I have to work the plan. I have to plan the plan, i got to work the plan. That's what God does. His plan is for us to be like Him, to conform us to the image of Christ. None of us stay the same. That's good news. We all become more and more like Christ because God has a plan for that and he's working that out what a glorious hope and treasure that is for Christian marriages that your husband is becoming more and more like Christ your wife is becoming more and more like Christ that's why you see godly marriages they get older and older and older and they say it gets better and better and better why? because you're both becoming more and more like Christ and how could that not be Beautiful and wonderful and gracious and glorious and it is, and that's God's promise that He's working this plan. And who's the plan for? It's for many brethren. First, in uh, of verse twenty nine. Uh, it's for family. It's for His church. It's for the people Christ considers His family, His brothers, sisters in Christ. And then He gives us five steps that he follows. Um, Not complicated, uh, but five steps that he follows. First of all, foreknowledge. Those he foreknows, verse 29, he also predestines, that's number two. Those he predestines, verse 30, says he also calls, that's the third one. And those he calls, he also justified, that's the fourth one, past tense. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Five steps, to working God's plan. Five step plan. Um, that's what God's doing all the time. He foreknows us. Foreknow- foreknowledge is just to forelove. The biblical term know. Abraham knew his wife. Means he loved his wife. Same way it's used here. Those whom he foreloved. Foreknows. After he knows us to be those he wants. He, he determines. Okay, I'm going after them, those. They love me, called according to my purpose. He calls us. Calls us out of darkness into life. Calls us out of sin into righteousness. So he justifies us. As right before God and those whom he justifies, he glorifies. Now, that doesn't apply to some. It applies to all of us who are his brethren. Um, And all five. He gives us the five-step plan for for great comfort. Because we're weak in understanding that we're going to be without condemnation when we see Jesus. Because we look at ourselves and see all the spots and blemishes. How can we possibly stand before God and be without blemish, without spot? How can we be just before Him? How can we really be sure that we're going to be glorified? And God says, Well, because it's a five step plan. You haven't seen the last few steps, but you've, you've seen the first steps. You've seen part of it, have you not? He said, it's, You've seen that I loved you, foreknowledge. You've seen that if I, for, if I loved you, I would determine to come and get you predestination. I would call you out of sin to myself. Do you not see some of these things? And if I've done that, then I've justified you, the fourth one. And then if I've justified you, I've glorified you. He says, in my mind, that's, that's the plan. That's the way it works. You don't get one of those things without getting all five of those things. So if you can think of, yeah, well, one of those things is true. Well, then all five of those things are true, whether you feel it or see it or not. Because that's God's plan, not yours. That's why it's so comforting to see the Spirit trying to help us here understand this. It's like going through a full-service car wash. You don't, you know, just just buy the basic package. If you get your wheel on their track and you start going through, you say, what am I going to get for my 20 bucks? And they said, well, you're going to get the tire clean, and you're going to get the pre-wash, and you're going to get the hot wax, and you're going to get the blow-dry, and you're going to get the detail. I mean, you're getting it all. It's like, whoo, put me on the track. I get the full service. It's like being in, in the playground, and, you know, the, the slides now, I guess they did it for health uh, safety reasons, but they got a tube around them. And there's no off-ramp. So as soon as you start at the top of the slide, where do you end up? You've got to get all the way to the end. If, if you, are, you stop, in, you put your hands, you put your feet, try to stop. You know, it doesn't matter. You stop anywhere in the middle. If you have the first part of the slide, you get the last part of the slide at some point. That's the way Scripture is unfolding this five-step plan. If you have got foreknowledge, then you've got predestination, and you've got calling, and you've got justification, and you've got glorification. If you start down the slide, you get to the end of the slide. It's it's like a domino effect. As soon as God starts this one, foreknowledge, then it hits the next one, predestination. Then it hits calling. Then it hits justification. Then it hits glorification. You can't start without it coming to an end. And it doesn't end until glorification. So glory, hallelujah, I am. That's why he puts it in past tense. I am justified. I am glorified. Because the plan has started. And if it is started, in God's mind, it's completed already. Even though in reality, I haven't experienced it all. But it's a done deal. It's planned by God for you and me. You see how glorious that is, to be in Christ and not walking through life with doubts, with uncertainty. What happens to me when I die? Who pleads my case? Before God. How can I be just? How can I enter into glory? And God says. Got that. Before I explained that to you. When I set my love upon you. I determined. To come after you. To call you. To justify you. And to glorify you. It's done. Praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit constantly. Convincing us. Convicting us. Of those truths. So that we can have comfort. So that we can have encouragement. So we can live life with guarantee of glorification. And then the last one. Verses 31 to the end of the chapter, verse 39, gives us six questions that just lead us to praise. There are six rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question, another big word for the kids, I guess. Rhetorical question is, is a question that's made in such a way that you don't expect an answer you expect it to just express wonderfully a statement that you already know the answer to so you're not when when a teacher gives you a rhetorical question they're not asking you to answer they're asking you to sit there and say yeah i know i know i know i know and god does that six times here he gives us these questions in such a way that you you just look and say Yeah, after what you just said, that's right, and that's right, and that's right. So let me give you the questions. You think about it. He says, now, after hearing what you've heard, what then, verse 31, shall we say to these things? It's like, right. If God's for us, who's against us? It's like, we already know the answer, right? If God God has determined this kind of plan, it's foolproof. Nobody can stop it. God's, God's the one who causes all things? Wow. And so he sets this plan and says, so if God, uh, what shall we say to these things? Like, It's like saying, what difference does it make? It makes a huge difference. Second question, if God's for us, who can be against us? We know. Well, well nobody can. Uh, third question, um, where was it? He did, uh, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for, uh, for us all, how will he not with him Also freely give us all things like, yeah, right. If if God's already given us the million dollar plan and we have a little $5,000 need over here, is he going to give us another five? It's like, well, duh, yeah. He's already heavily invested. He's invested his son into your life. So how will he not freely give you more, whatever you need? Because he's invested to the hilt. To care for us. We understand where his reasoning. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's like, well, nobody can do that. Because Christ is the one who's justified us. He's died for us. He's substituted his own record for ours. It's like, so another question is like, that we already know the answer to. God is the one who justifies. Verse 34. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? You know, he foreloved us. Who's going to stop that? Who's going to get in that five-step process somehow and stop the dominoes from falling? You know, it's mention the possibilities. Will tribulation, no, he causes the tribulation as well as the other stuff. Causes all things. Will it be distress? Will it be persecution? Will it be famine, nakedness, peril, sword? It says, just as it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. See, this was, people meant it for evil. God meant it for good. This was happening, but we are considered like sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, verse 37, we're overwhelmingly conqueror. Through him who loved us, I'm convinced neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. He says, just pick one of these rhetorical questions. We already know the answer. The answer is God loves us, God keeps us, God has determined to conform us to the image of Christ, and nobody can thwart. God's plans. And as a result of that we are going to be overwhelmingly conquerors. Now he didn't say we're going to win, we're going to be victorious by the skin of our teeth. See that's a conqueror. This is, no, you're going to be more than conqueror. It's like you're not just surviving and, and succeeding but you're taking everything that is thrown at you. And some of it is like being put to death literally. It's, it's, it's a terrible struggle and trial. But everything that is thrown at you, you're taking it. And instead of finding in it to be a stumbling block, you're using it as a stepping stone. And you're just getting higher and higher and higher. That's an overwhelming conqueror. A more than conqueror. Nothing seems to hold back this process That God has designed for you to go through so that you're justified and glorified in Christ. That's what we are. More than conquerors. Um, It's good news, isn't it? You're just a bunch of weak sinners. You know that, right? You join me in that category. And we need a lot of help. And God provides us with all the help we need. So instead of doubt today, start to think, wait. When I pray, my prayers are, are actually heard. It's not because of my words. It's because the Spirit has searched my heart. And he knows that's a cry of mine. And the Spirit has made my prayer Heard. so I don't need to doubt that God heard me God has the spirit saw to it and all these things that surround me sometimes they scare me and I think they're going to kill me but God who has sent them has so arranged them that I'm going to overwhelmingly conquer and he so loves me that I will be justified. And I will be glorified. And nothing. Nothing. That anyone can imagine. Could possibly stop it. I miss. Let's pray together. Father thank you for. Sending us your spirit. That just. It's a game changer. Radically. Changes us. Conforming us. To the image of Christ. How lonesome it is to live this life without the Spirit of God. We don't know if prayers are heard. We don't know if circumstances are going to turn out. We don't know much. And we know a lot less without the Spirit interceding, leading, and teaching us. Father, for those in this room who are wandering in darkness, full of doubt and anxiety, who struggle to see conclusions, who are striving to be a better man or a better woman and falling short. Father, grant them your love. Love them. Determine now that they might have a destiny, a Christ-like destiny. Call them. Justify them. And glorify them. Lord, we intercede for them. That's the cry of each parent. That our child would have that destiny. A Christ-like destiny. Father, for our friends, our, our brothers, our sisters, our family. We want them to have this life you've granted us. Extend your reach, Lord, through us to them. That they might become the brethren of God. Lord, help us to love you more and more as you continue to build, expand, and grow your church. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.